Bryce, would you want to read uh, verses 6 to 16 for me, please? Thanks for volunteering. Thank you, Bryce. So if you're not uh, entirely familiar with this particular uh, story of the anointing at at Bethany, we have in Matthew, Mark, and John very similar, if not the exact same stories, and each one of them describes it just a little bit differently. But what we know is Jesus is at Bethany, and Matthew and Mark tell us that it's at this gentleman named Simon the leper's house, Uh, Presumably at this time, this may have been a gentleman that Christ healed because still it wasn't custom for people to go to a leper's house. So we can be presumptuous that this man was healed and presumably by Christ. But I want to read real quick uh, John 12 where there's another account of this. John 12, I'll read the first two, uh, two verses. John says, Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus, who, uh, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. Then they made him his supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. So if you read the account of Matthew and Mark, you kind of presume that it appears in this story that this is one or two days before the Passover. If you remember last week, When Jesus had said these things, uh, Jesus had said in verse 2, you know that after two days is the Passover. So if you just read Matthew and Mark, you think that this story of the anointing uh, by Martha is just two days before the Passover. But John tells us that's not the case. Now, interestingly enough, Matthew and Mark don't actually say in this particular story what the timeline was. But John does. He's specific. He said six days before the Passover. So I think, and just reading a couple other commentators, seem to think that this particular event happened six days before uh, Christ was crucified. And uh, my uncle used a good word last week. He said a parenthetical thought, which is kind of just like a stopping in time and uh, just using or going back and using the story as an example, because it does fit in the timeline. It's having to do with Christ dying and preparing his body for burial, as we will see here. And uh, John also tells us that Lazarus is present. We can be presumptuous here that this uh, this is at Simon the leper's house, 
but Lazarus and his two sisters, Martha and Mary, are also present uh, at this gentleman's house. So we know it's at Bethany. We know that the disciples are here. We know that Simon the leper is here. And then we also know that Lazarus, Martha, and Mary are also present. There may have been some more people present, but we're really not given their names. So those are a couple of things that we can take given this story. Now, there are a couple of similarities between all three of them, and we'll go ahead and dive into the story now, what it was. Now, there was this woman. She is not named in Matthew or Mark's account, but uh, John in John 12 gives us her name, as I just read here a moment ago, that uh, Martha served, and then Mary took a pound of very costly oil. So this Mary took some oil, and as we'll see, went and... So, similarities, a little bit more detail, and tells us what this ointment or what this oil was. It was uh, called spikenard, which is an ointment that comes from, the, uh, from India and the Himalayan mountains. So you can imagine this time period of, uh, you know, the first century... That, that was quite a bit of a distance. It had helped a couple hundred years prior to that when Alexander the Great had conquered all of the Persian Empire. Really, trade routes were able to get stuff like this, this oil. But nonetheless, it was still very expensive. Kind of like us still today, you know, not that anyone here has a Ferrari or uh, a Lamborghini or anything, but it's made over in, in Italy, and you still have quite a bit of travel costs to, to bring those across the ocean. So that would be the same here is that this oil was still very costly to bring all the way over into the, to the Middle East. And then the type of flask I was doing a little research on, it's uh, gypsum, which is found in the limestone deposits of caves or natural springs. So you have the oil, and then you have the container, the little vessel that the oil is held in, and it was like a, a, called a gypsum. It was found in limestone in caves or in natural springs. So another thing that's kind of rare and difficult to find. So putting two and two together, this is a very costly oil and flask. And the interesting thing about this flask is a lot of times it was white, if not like completely translucent. I looked up a couple images on Google, and it was uh, a couple of the times I had it as white, and the other times it was translucent. So maybe just depending exactly where you found it. But a very beautiful piece of pottery, handcrafted, and usually they were made in Egypt. And then they handcrafted it, you know, hand-carved it out like they did in the age, and then, they, and then they poured the oil in it, making it a very expensive thing to use. And also, they were smelled incredibly well. But again, the similarities between all three stories, between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this lady Mary poured this oil on Christ. And then we have that the disciples were all indignant. So Mary sees Christ there. She breaks the neck of this bottle. John tells us she poured it on his feet, used her hair to wash Jesus' feet. Matthew and Mark tell us that she poured it upon his head. But what's interesting is the disciples appeared to be indignant. And we'll see which one led uh, being outraged here in a minute. But we have the disciples now witnessing the pouring out of this oil upon Christ. Now, before reading this, you would see that their master being having this oil poured on them. At first, you would probably think that the disciples would kind of be taken aback, maybe a little dumbfounded. You know, 
kind of in awe or amazement that this lady would set aside or have this special ointment and pour it on Christ. You know, maybe an appreciation or a, a thankfulness for this lady of doing this to their master. At least you would presume that's what they would want to do. But they weren't. They were completely outraged. Most of the disciples, it appears the 11 of the disciples, were disappointed. And there was one disciple, particularly, who John tells us led the outrage. And going back to John 12, we'll see here verses 4 four to 6. And I do find this stuff very interesting, if not a little comical, of just a certain individuals that are in the scriptures and, and what they do. So in John 12... Verses 4, John gives us specifically the disciple who led the outrage. One of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Then he said that, this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take, uh, he used to take what was put in it. So John gives us the ulterior motive of what Judas wanted to do. He didn't really care about the poor. In fact, he didn't care about them at all. But he was the money changer. He was in charge of the money. He was the treasurer of the disciples and of the group of Jesus. So he didn't really want to, you know, give it to the poor. He wanted to sell it and then siphon off some of the proceeds. Now, to be fair, that the rest of the disciples may not have wanted to do that. They may have been more inclined to want to give to the poor, but still, nonetheless, it shows their complete lack of understanding of what, as we'll see here in a moment, this really symbolized here. And uh, it appears that some of the disciples, they may or may, uh, in retrospect, John knew that he was a thief, but it's really not certain right now if the other disciples knew that Judas was a thief. Obviously, Christ knew he was a thief. But looking at Verse 9, for this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. Again, we see the outrage. And then verse 10, we have Jesus responding to the disciples. And before I read that verse, if anyone has any questions or comments, you know, go ahead and, and shout them out now. Correct. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the disciples may not have known he was a thief, but clearly I think we can all take that Jesus understood that he was a thief and uh, knew what his, what his motive was. Yes. Correct. Yeah. And 
we'll, we'll get through this, and I'll go back and just kind of do a, a brief summary of what the meaning of the pouring of the oil and just a couple thoughts. But uh, continuing on in verse 10, But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. Jesus responds and asks a jolting question that may have taken the disciples by surprise. At least 11 uh, outside of Judas may have been thinking that what they were considering of selling this oil for the poor was actually a good deed. But Jesus rebukes them, saying, why trouble her? You ever have a time where you thought you were doing something right, you're asking the right questions, only to have your parent or mentor rebuke you, and it stings. And I think the disciples outside of Judas, when Jesus said this, they were kind of stung. They were kind of taken aback of Jesus' rebuke of them. And it appears that they shut up after this. And then continuing in verse 11, Christ says, For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not always have. Verse 11, this is kind of interesting. It appears Christ is here rebuking the poor. We've seen from chapter 1, or at the beginning of Christ's ministry, almost three years before, all the way till now, just perpetually Christ is in the presence of the poor, always ministering to the poor, the poor in spirit, healing the sick, healing the lame, going to the sinner's house. The vast majority of people Christ has been in contact with have been the lower rung of society, if you would say, the untouchables. It appears that Christ is flinging them overboard or completely rebuking the poor. Uh, MacArthur, in his commentaries, makes an interesting observation here that Christ is referring to his deities, uh, his deity. The disciples clearly do not understand as of yet who truly Christ is. You know, this woman Mary is anointing God, the God-man. And the disciples are here just thinking that this is just another uh, passing moment with their master. But they don't understand the significance of it, as we'll see here in a minute, of what this symbolizes, the death and the burial of Jesus Christ. The disciples clearly do not understand who Jesus is and what he is coming to do for wanting to sell this ointment to the poor. The God-man is in their midst receiving this oil, preparing for his death, and the disciples are worried about the poor. I really think that's the bigger point here, is that Christ is not casting away the poor as it is, but he's rebuking the disciples. Don't you understand? Don't you see what's going on here? This is my last days here on earth before I face the wrath of my Father. And this lady is doing a good work for me, preparing my body for burial. And continuing on, we have in verse 12, For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. We see here Christ even saying what this pouring on of the oil is for his burial. Read Mark, uh, I'll go ahead and read Mark 16, 1. We'll see here. Uh, uh, symbolizing the burial. Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices that they might come and anoint him. So we see after Christ is crucified as he is in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, these three ladies bought these ointments and special spices to go and anoint the body of Jesus Christ who had died just the day before as he's laying in this tomb. So you see here, Christ is again alluding 
to his coming death at this pouring on of the oil. And really in ancient Near East cultures, you can imagine they didn't have the way to dispose of dead bodies like we do. So putting on fragrance and oil and different spices and stuff on a dead body really helped to kill some of the stench, uh, especially if you can think of the Near East, how hot it would get. Sure, it was pretty dry, but nonetheless, I'm sure some of those tombs would uh, get 115, 120 degrees with a decaying body, and the stench really had to be unbearable. But kind of digressing there for a moment. And we have here, uh, Charles Ellicott makes an interesting observation here of the disciples' point of view of what's going on here. And especially with Christ's rebuke to the disciples, the words must have fallen with a strange sadness upon the ears of the disciples and the other guests, that is, Jesus preparing for his burial. They were expecting that the kingdom of God should immediately appear, as in Luke 19.11, and were looking forward to the dawn of the next day as the hour of its victory and triumph. The enthusiasm of this moment made them deaf to the real import of what they heard and of their master alone all that company, knowing what he would do. So again, the disciples appear to be completely oblivious of what is actually going to come. And we'll see here in a moment the way John categorizes things, that the next day, or in a very short time period of this happening, Jesus makes this triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So the disciples still have this expectation of Christ going to overthrow worldly and earthly kingdoms and establish his reign on the earth. And then verse 13, Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told of her as a memorial. We can take a couple things here from this verse 13. First, the respect Christ has for this woman. You know what's interesting is, especially in this time period, the a woman really was not appreciated. She was almost like a second-class citizen. But time and again, we see the respect our Lord Jesus Christ has for women. And we see here that the disciples rebuking this woman, Christ saying, no, what she is doing is for my burial. And then, uh, interesting, uh, in Ecclesiastes 7.1, a good name is better than good ointment. This is a kind of an interesting verse here. That this lady's good name, who is now written in the word of God forever and ever, this Mary, her good name, this good deed she did to Christ, is far more precious, far more in value than that oil could ever have been. Second, when Christ said this woman would be remembered for her deed, I again think this is an affirmation of Christ's deity. And that the tri-unity of God. So we have here that Christ is, in a way, predicting the future, telling the disciples and obviously telling us in hindsight that this woman's name will be written in the book of life. And we know throughout the New Testament that it was written through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, by the apostles, by men of God. And I think this is just a brief overview, or a brief reminder of the tri-unity of God, that they're not completely separate but that here Jesus is identifying his deity of what is going to be in the scriptures. And, and like I said, just to kind of passing the meaning of this story, the way Matthew puts it in this narrative, it seems that he is putting together a picture of Christ preparing himself for his soon-to-be death and burial. 
Christ even says that. I think that's a given. This pouring out of the oil, this anointing of the oil is preparing Christ for what is going to happen in a few short days. I can't help but also think kind of a subliminal message, if you will, in these couple of verses. But where else do we see in the Bible the anointing of oil? King David, that's a great... In 1 Samuel 16, 12 and 13, I'll just read this here real quickly. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said to Samuel, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward, and Samuel arose. And I think we can't fail to realize here also the significance of the pouring on of this oil. Is yes, Christ says it's for his burial. But even with David, when he was anointed king, it wasn't that he just went and took the throne. He had a long period of suffering, of being hunted by Saul, and, and having his life threatened before he ascended his throne in Israel. And a far, far greater extent, is that of our Lord Jesus Christ. When he was anointed, he had to go through his travail. He had to go through his death, burial, and resurrection. But now, what do we see? That Christ reigns forevermore. He sits on the right hand of God, making intercessions for us. So I think we can't fail to appreciate here what the anointing of Christ is. Yes, it's for his burial, but quite possibly this could also signify his, uh, his kingdom. And as I said earlier, John identifies this six days before. Interestingly enough, the very next in John 12, the very next section is the triumphal entry. When What did the people chant to Jesus as he's going into Jerusalem? Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. The King of Israel. This pouring on of the oil, I think also can symbolize the kingship of Christ, not only of Israel, but of the whole universal Realm. So before we go on to the uh, betrayal of Judas, anyone have any questions or comments? Yes, Rebecca.
Very good point. Very good. You know, it's interesting is I think uh, John says 300 denarii, which was a substantial sum. That, that, that's like, you know, fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 to us now, which is a huge amount of money. So, yeah, it very well could have been her complete life savings. <laughs> yeah, that is interesting. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess, I guess it may be to the point where her name doesn't really matter. It, yeah, it's it's uh, Christ, right? <laughs> he's the one that matters. He's he's everything. Very good points. So then, we get to verse fourteen to sixteen. Here, where his work gets interesting. Judas agrees to betray Christ. So I will go ahead and read these. Three verses. And one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted him out thirty pieces of silver. So from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. I want to look at this particular section, dealing with Judas kind of in a chronological order, though it, it may not appear to be, based on a uh, scripture's timeline and uh, give a general timeline here. So the first verse I had in mind is from our Lord's mouth himself, John 17, 12. In his high priestly prayer, he says, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost, except the son of perdition, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. The scriptures might be fulfilled. What are those scriptures? So here I just want to kind of look on from the Old Testament, even in a New Testament perspective, what are the scriptures, what are the descriptions in the Old Testament of the leading to this betrayal of Judas? And I think we use John seventeen twelve as our basis, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And then John 17, 12, uh, Charles Ellicott has a very good translation of this, I think. And none of them perished except him whose nature it was to perish. It's not that God, you know, controlled Judas like a ventriloquist puppet and made him do this. It was in his nature to do this. God handed him over to himself to do what he naturally wanted to do, which was be greedy and a coveter of money. And sell out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Psalm 41.9 is the first verse that will be of our basis for Judas. And what does that say? 
Psalm 41.9. Even my close friend whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Psalm 41.9. Real quick, does someone want to read John 13.8? And then if someone wants to put their hand in uh, Acts 1, 15 to 20, uh, you could go ahead and read that too. I'll, I'll tell you when you can read that. But does someone want to read John 13, 8? All right, if not, I have it right here. But someone, if they want to read Acts uh, 1, 15 to 20 in a few minutes. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. This again is the words of Jesus Christ, quoting the scriptures, quoting Psalm 41.9, the fulfillment here of what Jesus, or I'm sorry, of what Judas is going to do to Christ, the one who ate the bread. As we'll see here, next week or the week after, Jesus fed Judas the bread and said, what you do, go do quickly a fulfillment of the scriptures. And we have that in Jesus' ministry. Time and again, a perpetual fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. Then we have Psalm 109, verses 6 to 8. Verses 6 to 8. I'll go ahead and read that real quick, and then someone, if you can be ready with Acts. Appointed a wicked man over him, And let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged, let him come forth guilty. And let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few. Let another take his office. Psalms 109, verses 6 to 8. Anyone have uh, Acts 15 to 20? Go ahead, Dad. Thank you. So again, we have Peter here in Acts, after Judas had killed himself, again, reminding us in the Old Testament scriptures of what Judas was going to do was foretold by the Holy Spirit through the prophets of old in the Old Testament. What he was going to do is betrayal of Christ. It predicted the death of Judas and then the rise of Matthias to that of the twelfth apostle in Acts 1. Jesus says in John, the other two verses... John six sixty four and 70. Listen to the words of our Lord. He said, But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus 
knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. In verse 70, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. We see here again Christ before, pointing out who would betray him, fulfilling the Old Testament scriptures. Verse 14, going back to Matthew. We have that one of the twelve, Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest. So Judas now goes out to confer with the leaders of Israel on how they might destroy Christ. Judas seeks them. They do not seek him. Interesting about that. They do not actively go out and seek Judas. Judas goes out and seeks them. Notice Luke 22, 3, using Luke here, we see what happens to Judas. And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. So we see Judas' heart hardened by himself, the love of money. And what happens? Satan inhabits Judas, and Judas then goes to the chief priest and the elders and wants to betray Jesus. John Gill and Joseph Benson, uh, in their commentaries, kind of have an interesting theory about Judas here and that they theorize that the rebuke of Christ just given to Judas regarding the woman and the ointment was enough to set Judas over the edge. So it's clear that Judas was you know, pillaging the, the uh, coffers of the disciples for a long period of time. But if you remember, John specifically saying that Judas was the one who led the charge against the woman. So it appears that Jesus' rebuke was primarily against Judas. Because Judas was the one who was speaking for the rest of the disciples. And they kind of have a theory that this was enough to set Judas over the edge. He finally snapped. Through that, through that instance, he sought to betray Christ, to quench his thirst for revenge, for being rebuked in front of them all, and also for his ever greater appetite for money. Verse 15 and said, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? Judas asked the chief priest and the elders, what are you willing to give me if I betray him to you? And they said, and they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. From Zechariah 11, and, uh, uh, chapter 11, verse 12, we see 30 pieces of silver about represents the price of a slave. So it was a substantial amount of money, but really not a whole lot of money when you think of it, of betraying someone. You would have think Judas would have asked for more or there would have been more money given. So it's just kind of interesting that, yes, it was the price of a slave, but it wasn't actually a great deal of money. John uh, thirteen fifty seven. 57, uh, it appears... They ask the, uh, let me go ahead and read it real quick. John 13, 57. The elders of Israel, peers, may have put a bounty on Jesus' head. John 13, that's 12, 57. No, that's incorrect. Well, anyway, it's not the right verse. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the leaders of Israel asked, if anyone knew where Christ was, 
to turn him in. So it may have been that they put a bounty on Christ's head for 30 pieces of silver. And Judas saw it and said, let me go ahead and I'll turn him in. And then verse 16, so that from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. We'll see Judas looking for a way to betray Christ over the coming hours as things are getting underway. And let us always remember that everything here from the Old Testament until now, what Judas is doing, betraying Christ, again, as we reminded ourselves last week, all under the sovereign hand of God. Pretty amazing to to contemplate and consider that all of this wicked, all of this evil, somehow, as we see continually time and again in the scriptures, man, Judas, the Roman authorities, the Jewish leaders, meaning it for evil, that is to destroy Christ, but thank the Lord that God is meaning it for our good. The greatest tragedy in all of history, the only innocent man who ever suffered an injustice, the greatest evil ever, was ultimately for our good, which I think we can take as an encouragement here today. Before I close, anyone have any questions or comments? All right, if not, we'll... uh, Do verses 17, Lord willing, to 30 next week and continue on. I appreciate your all attention. Thank you very much.